Well, good morning again and welcome again, but now not only to those of you who are here in our traditional sanctuary, but welcome also especially right now to those of you who are joining us in our contemporary service and online and via broadcast. I'm really glad that you all are here, that we're all here together and can be learning from God's Word together and growing together as followers of Jesus Christ, even if we can't all be in the same exact place at the same time. We're going to be learning from the scriptures again today from the Bible as we always do. And if you don't have a Bible with you, but you would like to use one, our ushers are going to come up the aisles in both of our worship venues. And if you'd like to borrow one during this hour, please feel free. They'd love to share one with you. And you can just put that on the shelf in the back of both of our worship venues after the service is over today. Can I just ask you as we're kind of getting started here, do you ever struggle with the content of the Bible? Is it ever hard to read and understand what's going on? Maybe especially in the Old Testament so long ago? Because honestly, I'm struggling with a little piece of that right now myself. There's a little group of guys that I meet with every other Monday morning, and together right now, we are reading a book called The Story. Some of you, I think, have heard of this. Some of you may have read this book before. The Story is a book that's kind of like a Reader's Digest version of the Bible almost. It's the, it's the actual text of the Bible, kind of recondensed, rearranged a little bit, and laid out to read like a novel. And it's really engaging that way. It's very helpful. It's, it's meant to serve as kind of a, a Bible study tool and introduction and invitation to reading the Bible. And as we're doing this, there are some things, I, I'm rereading some Old Testament stories, kind of starting at the beginning and reading this book. I'm rereading some stories I haven't read again for a little while. And, you know, some of those are inspiring. I mean, I'm, I'm rereading stories of people with names like Abraham and Sarah or Ruth or Joseph or Jacob. And some of you may know some of their stories. And these are people who lived a long time ago who experienced the, the call of God in their lives and who were trying to figure out, what is God saying to me? What does God want from me? How do I learn to trust God? How do I learn to cooperate with what God is leading me toward or doing in my life? And, and those stories, are, they're ancient. They're 3,000, 4,000 years old. And yet somehow old as they are, they're still really contemporary. As I and other people, you also are probably doing many of the same things. What is, what is God maybe trying to say to me? What does God want to do in my life? How do I learn to trust God? How do I learn to cooperate with what God is doing in my life? Those, sto those stories are inspiring and instructive and really helpful. At the same time, I'm rereading some stories that are really hard to deal with. There's one example. I'm rereading the stories of the ancient Israelite leader Joshua. Joshua lived like 3,300, 3,400 years ago. And in the book of Joshua, and I'm reading a Reader's Digest version of it right now, but it's the same stories. I'm reading these stories of Joshua who reports his experience, his experience of hearing from God that he's being told to go kill all kinds of people, like whole cities, whole nations of people, men, women, children, wipe them all out. And when modern eyes and ears read and hear these stories, I mean, it, it sounds like genocide. And I'm reading these stories with the same eyeballs with which I'm currently reading stories out of Gaza and Iraq and Syria, Jefferson, Missouri. And it's problematizing for me. 
And I'm trying to think like, well, how am I supposed to make sense of this? How are we as people of God supposed to understand this? Or maybe at just a little bit more practical, personal level, is this supposed to say something to me? How am I supposed to respond to this? How do I figure out what this is communicating to me? And then just in the middle of this week, Wednesday morning this week, as I was thinking through and praying over this message that I wanted to share with you today, I happened to read a story. It's a story of a young 20-something woman who grew up in a Christian church, I think in the southern part of the United States. And she grew up in a church where she learned to read the Bible for all of its life-guiding rules and laws. And this actually worked out pretty well for her for a while. She was a pretty good rule follower. And she learned in her church family to especially well follow those rules that were like the favorite rules in their church community and among her parents, because a lot of us pick and choose which rules are our favorites in the Bible. And she wound up getting good at that and getting a lot of affirmation from her parents and her church family, other adults, from that. And so her identity kind of got wrapped up in that. That's how that works. And unfortunately, the whole edifice came crumbling down on top of her as a young adult. Because that whole thing came packaged for her with a lot of guilt and shame and fear. When she got to be into her 20s and she was just early in her marriage, this whole thing broke apart and she would describe herself now as sort of being in slow recovery from that mess that was Christianity. And she said no to Jesus and all the things she learned about in that Bible that she read. I just read that story and I, I know that story is not unique. It just breaks my heart. I just read that story and got so sad. I just was sitting there. I just had to sit for a few minutes and just mourn that for a while before I could keep thinking about anything else. There's like 85 things that went wrong in that story before we got to the end that's so heartbreaking. It just kills me. So I'm thinking, how is it that we read the Bible? Are these stories of people's experiences of our God from so long ago How can they still speak to us today? How can those things still be relevant to us, and how are we supposed to understand them? Those are huge questions, right? Those are huge questions, and I want to be honest enough and respectful enough to say that those huge questions deserve huge answers, way more than we could really fully cover in the short time we have together this morning. But I think the heart of those answers... I think the heart of those answers can be found in this little chapter from the ancient prophet Isaiah that we've been reading all summer, and now this passage reads a day, what is now called Isaiah chapter 56. Or more specifically, actually, I think the heart of those answers can be found in the way that Jesus himself read and used this passage when he did read and use it in his life. I want to show you what I mean. So if you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your tablet or phone, this would be a great time to open it up. It's Isaiah chapter 56. If you're using one of our Quest Bibles, it's on page 1066, and it turns the page to 1067 uh, also. And then otherwise, if you have your own Bible or an app, it's just Isaiah chapter 56, and you can go right there. As you're getting there, let me share a little background with you. I have sort of a secret theory about this passage, although I'm about to tell hundreds of you about it, and I put it in our church e-note this week, so there goes the secret, right? So how about if I call it my working theory? I have this little working theory that I kind of halfway believe, (laughs) that I think Isaiah 56 might have been Jesus' favorite Bible passage. (laughs) 
Now, people have favorite Bible passages, and I think this one might have been Jesus' favorite. And the reason that I think that is because as I read this chapter, I see at least five things. Some of you might, if you read this passage, might actually see more. I see at least five things that I think became thematic in Jesus' own ministry. I think he was fueled and inspired by this passage. What I want to do is just real quickly kind of hit those five things that give you an overview and then dig down into what I think really energizes this whole thing in a unified way. So if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 56, I'm just going to, and they'll be on the slides up here on the screens also. I just want to show these to you. In Isaiah 56, 1, God says to the prophet Isaiah, my salvation is close at hand, at the, at the beginning of this passage. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing he said in the same language was the kingdom of God is close at hand. That's how he kicked off his ministry. In the next verse, Isaiah 56, 2, it says, blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast. Right after Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand, he went on and taught about the kingdom of God in a really famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And the most famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes, where Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who mourn. He kind of got that form of speaking from here, I think, though he changed it quite a bit. A little bit later in verse 7, there's this really famous line that Jesus quoted. He quoted, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations at a climactic moment that uh, we're going to read more about in just a few minutes when Jesus was overturning tables in the temple. In the next verse, in verse 8, the last couple lines say, this is God's voice speaking through Isaiah, I will gather still others, people who are on the outside that nobody expected, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This was thematic for Jesus' ministry, continuing to include the outcasts and gathering those that everybody else was happy to leave scattered. And then the last thing that I think uh, is for, foreshadows Jesus' ministry comes from the last section of this chapter that is the not-so-happy section of the chapter. This is where God, through Isaiah, gets critical of Israel's leaders and says, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. Jesus also was critical of Israel's leaders in his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he called them blind guides. I think his criticism of the leaders is the same as he read in Isaiah. So here we have foreshadowing in Jesus' ministry, his announcement of the kingdom of God being close at hand, the inspiration for his famous Beatitudes, the line he quotes at the climactic moment when Jesus carries out his attack on the function of the temple, the theme of Jesus including the outsiders in his ministry, and also a foreshadowing of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees. This chapter is rich with the things that became central in Jesus' own ministry. But let me now go back and not do all five of these, but dig down to what I think unifies them and gives energy to this thing. And to do that, we're going to look a little more closely first at verse 1 of this chapter. Isaiah 56 verse 1 says this. The Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. To understand this passage, we have to clarify what that word salvation means. When a lot of people today hear the word salvation, especially I think when Christians hear the word salvation, our minds immediately go to an eternal future. They go to being able to live in heaven forever. But I think what Isaiah was not saying when he announced that God's salvation is close at hand is you're all about to die and go to heaven real soon. 
He was saying something else that God's saving work, God's rescuing work is about to be unveiled. It's about to be rolled out. God is going to do a saving, a salvation orient. He's going to do a saving work in, in and among his people. And what that meant in Isaiah's day was that God was going to gather all these Israelites who had been scattered and made slaves and exiles and captives in a faraway pagan land called Babylon. And God was going to save them from those terrible circumstances, bring them back home, and repatriate them in the land of Israel again. And God was going to assert his own good rule over them. He was going to be good king God over them again, replacing evil king Nebuchadnezzar or the other Babylonian kings who had been ruling over and ruling against the Israelites. God was going to reestablish his kingdom over them again. That saving work was at hand. And when Jesus came to announce what God was doing in him, when Jesus came to proclaim what good thing, what new thing God was doing in him, these are the words he used. I'll just read them to you here from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Jesus says in verse 15, the time has come. It has been foretold by prophets like Isaiah, and now the time has come. The kingdom of God, in the NIV translation, has come near. I wish they hadn't messed that up. It's the very same language as the book of Isaiah. They both say, has come near, or is at hand. It's the same word. The kingdom of God, the the rule of good King God is now coming near, so repent. Turn your life around from going the wrong direction, turn in the good direction, and believe this good news that God's saving work is now near at hand. It is being unrolled. It is being unveiled. And then, as we continue to read what comes next in this chapter, we get the definition, I think, or at least more definition of what that means. To fill this out, I want to read a few verses to you. If you have a Bible open, you can follow along with me. We'll have it on the screens also. This is Isaiah chapter 56, starting in verse 3. And I'm just going to kind of comment as we go along for a few verses through verse 8. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Let no foreigner, okay, Old Testament context, a Gentile, an outsider, someone who doesn't belong, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, who's seeking the Lord, let them not say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. I'm not going to say anything else about that part right now except to say that eunuchs would have been symbolic of people who were unclean or considered that way by the ancient Israelites and not welcome, therefore, in God's temple. Let not the foreigners and those who are, feel unwelcome in God's temple, let them not say these things that I'm excluded. Verse 4, for this is what the Lord says. Not what you say, this is what the Lord says now. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who honor God, that is, who, ch- who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them... I will give within my temple, within its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, right? Better than what they lost in this life. I will give them more than that. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And not just them, verse 6 says, but also the foreigners I started with. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, these outsiders that nobody else was welcoming in, who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these, these outsiders and outcasts, I will bring them, not just they will come, I will bring them to my holy mountain, the temple mountain in Jerusalem, and I will give them joy. I will take away their pain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer, right? Beauty for ashes, right? 
their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted, not rejected like everybody else thought they would be. But when they come to worship me, I will accept it on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord, the God in charge of all the earth, declares this. He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This vision, this imagination that God gave to the prophet Isaiah for the sake of the people Israel, that they were there for the sake of being a place, being a a conduit of God's blessing through which God would bless the rest of the world, that he would gather to himself still others besides those already gathered. Even though the Israelites continued to revere and admire the prophet Isaiah from this day on and for centuries, they never really embraced that vision. Historically speaking, the leaders of Israel continued to be happy to consider those who are on the outside to be outsiders, and they should stay there while God's blessing and leading and guiding and salvation were meant for them. And fast forward 500, 700 years to the life of Jesus, and we're in the same boat. The leaders of Jesus' own people, the leaders of the Israelites were still at that time more than happy to keep the unclean, the outcast, the foreigners on the outside. And Jesus came saying, no way, no way. That's not what God is like. That's not what God is doing. And Jesus continued in his ministry to be committed all the time. There's story after story of Jesus' life where he was living out this vision, though it caused him great conflict with those powers in Israel at his day, that he would welcome those who were outsiders, that he would welcome the clean and the sinful and the outcasts and those who thought they were, those whom everyone else was excluding, he included. And it got him in trouble all the time. He was always explaining himself and declaring the including grace of God that was being made known, that was being unveiled in a new and more powerful way in him. He did this all the time. But sometimes he did this at particularly potent moments, at climactic moments in his life and ministry. And one of probably the most key turning points in Jesus' life was the day that he walked into the very temple of God. As far as everybody else around him was concerned, it was the holiest place and the most powerful place on earth. And he went into that place and interrupted what it was doing. He went in there and he started overturning the tables of the people who were exchanging currency for Israelites who were traveling from faraway lands and needed to trade their money to the local currency so that they could go to the other tables that Jesus was turning over and buy animals for sacrifice, for worship. And Jesus turned that over also. He went right into the temple and interrupted the very worship life, the very function of the holiest, most powerful, God-given place on earth. You don't do that unless you have something really important you're trying to communicate and accomplish. And Jesus went in and he did those things. And you can imagine that people are screaming and shouting and some of the things they're screaming and shouting is, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And at this potent moment, Jesus has nothing new to say. He doesn't make up new words at that point. Jesus takes onto his lips the words of the prophet Isaiah from this chapter, Isaiah chapter 56. And this is, I'll read these verses of what Jesus said to them. 
He said in Mark eleven seventeen, is it not written? Haven't you read this in the Bible? Doesn't the Bible say, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you know where this happened? Not just in the temple, but more specifically, where did Jesus go and interrupt the worship life in order to say that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? He did it in the court of the foreigners, what's known as the court of the Gentiles, the way outside part that was as close to anything holy as the foreigners could get. He went into that place and he overturned the tables and said, this has got to stop. God's doing a new thing. And it's a new thing that was been announced hundreds of years ago already. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how much better the whole world would be? Can you imagine how different and how much better every day of world history for the last 2,000 years would be if we could all have captured even just this one lesson from Jesus. If people all over the world who act in the name of God, and I know that today, just as it was in Jesus' own day, people are committed to acting in the names of different gods. But can you imagine if everyone in the world who acted and, and continues to act in the name of God would understand that God is interested in the prayers of all nations and not the persecution of every nation but mine. The world would be a different place. I think Jesus knew how to read the Bible. I think Jesus knew how to read the Bible. When you read the Bible Jesus read, the way Jesus read it, because it matters not just what you read, right? It matters how you read it. When Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day, they were having absolutely no debate at all about what they should read. I guess the Sadducees read a narrower part of the Old Testament, but they were still reading the Bible. They were not arguing about what was the sacred text. They were arguing about how to read it. What does it mean? What does it tell us that God is doing now in our lives in this world? And when you read the Bible Jesus read, the way Jesus read it, you don't start with whole lists full of rules and laws packaged with guilt and shame and fear. When you read the Bible Jesus read, the way Jesus read it, you don't start with confusing things like the ancient geopolitics of the Israelite leader Joshua that sometimes caused me so much trouble. When you read the Bible Jesus read, the way Jesus read it, you start with this insight and with this story of the salvation of God that has been being rolled out like thunder across the centuries, rolling in from the horizon until it is close at hand. From the salvation of God that reached out and saved and oppressed enslaved people when they were in this place called Egypt. And they cried out to God and God said, I've heard the cry of my people. God hears the cry of his suffering people and he sent Moses in to lead them out and set them free to know him and live for him and live in his way on this earth and reflect his character in the world for the blessing of all nations. 
We know that the salvation of God continued to be rolled out in Isaiah's day, this ancient story, where God reached out to these exiles, these captives who were enslaved in Babylon, under these kings who were coming between them and God. And God had allowed them to go there in the first place. But now God said, tell them my salvation is at hand. Speak comfort to my people because they're coming home again. We know the salvation of God, the kingdom of God, the good rule of God continues to be rolled out and it came to a climax in the life of Jesus where healing was rolled out against sickness and the sick and the hurting were healed. Where the kingdom of God and the reign of God was ruled out against the spiritual forces of evil in a darkened world and people were set free from their bondage to demons. Where, in the, where those who were sinners were forgiven and those who were outcasts were included in the resurrection and the ascension and reign of Jesus, death itself was defeated and God has begun to conquer the final enemy, the last enemy, death itself. And as the reign of God continues to roll like thunder from the horizon, it comes to us and it includes us. And we get wrapped up in the same story and hear the good news that the reign of good King God has come to be real in our lives and we are invited to submit to it and to be liberated from the rule of sin that seeks to destroy and impoverish and thin and wreck our lives. And when this story reaches us and we are invited in and begin to receive the life that Jesus comes to give us, there comes upon us this realization. There comes upon us this miraculous news that when God said 2,500 years ago through the prophet Isaiah, I will gather still others to myself besides those already gathered. That when Jesus took on the powers in the, in the temple in the first century and said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That the people who were outsiders who were being brought to the inside was us. Was people like you and me. Sometimes I think we get comfortable thinking that we actually belong on the inside, and we fail to appreciate the miracle of God's grace that it took to get us here. Sometimes we think that we're outsiders still stuck out there, and we are yet unreached by the grace of God. But Jesus came to reveal to us that all of us are outsiders being made insiders by nothing less than the heart-changing, world-changing, grace of God. You know, insiders who think they belong there, they tend to be smug and uncompassionate and entitled. And outsiders who think they belong there tend to be defeated and live without hope. But outsiders made insiders by the grace of God in Jesus Christ get filled with gratitude, get softened hearts get to live with lives that are characterized with compassion for others who are still there. Lives characterized by mercy and love and a desire to care and serve and bring along anybody else who's with them. And maybe some of you feel like you're out there. You've been stuck on the outside. You are not welcome in the family of God. You feel like you have wandered far from God. And maybe that's the case. It is for all of us, really. We have wandered away from God. But Jesus was so committed to gather still others besides those already gathered. He was so committed to gathering you along with them that Jesus took on the powers that were 
and he got himself killed to bring you in with joy into the family, into the temple, into the house of God. And to invite you, to offer you the life that is truly life. To offer you the life that comes from God, life in relationship with God, life in the community of God's people. And to invite you to receive it and to begin to live in it in such a way that it begins now and will never end. It will not be undone by death itself. And when we have been brought from the outside to the inside, there's really only one question left that we must ask. And that question is this. Who's next? Who else? Because God is not giving up on this millennia-old mission of his to gather to himself still others besides those already gathered. He's on this mission. He's not stopping. And there are other people in this world that God has his heart set on now in addition to you and me. And he's already at work in their lives. He's already committed to gathering still others. And some of them are in your lives and they're in my life. There are people you know at work. They live next door to you. They're in your family. They're your friends. And God's already working in their lives. He's already working to relieve pain. He's trying to bring comfort. He's trying to bring inclusion and a word of hope and grace. And a long time ago, people with names like Isaiah were his mouthpiece to speak words of invitation and hope and comfort. Jesus, our Lord, whom we follow, was doing the same thing. And now those of us who are apprenticed to him, who are discipled to his mind and his words and his way of life, God's calling us to be used in the same way to speak words of love and grace, welcome and hope and comfort, to be caring and serving, loving, compassionate, and invitational, to invite the people on whom God's heart is set, to invite them into our lives with grace, to invite them into our homes, to invite them perhaps into our families and networks of friends, to invite them into our church family, and into our life, the life that shall know no end. And when this happens for us, we are doing nothing more and nothing less than participating in this salvation of God, which has come close at hand already thousands of years ago. It came to a climax in the life of Jesus, and it will come to its fulfillment at the last day, on the day that shall know no end. And we get to be a part of it now and forever. And God is interested in all his people being a part of it too. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your incredible persistent grace that you have unleashed into the world and unleashed on us. God, I pray that you would draw us close to you. Teach us to see the story of your salvation, your call to yourself to receive your life and live your way here on this earth. And God, I pray that you would capture our hearts to be like yours, to be captivated for those who are still not yet gathered, just like your heart is set on them. God, fill us with the experience, the embrace of your grace, and make us the vehicles by which you share it in this your world. We love you, Lord. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.